So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the April 2014 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be a terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Christopher Ryerson from the Institute for Heart and Lung Health, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. He's here to discuss his article, Predicting Survival Across Chronic Interstitial Lung Disease, the ILD GAP Model. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kyle. Also joining us is Ethel Wells, Professor of Respiratory Medicine from the Interstitial Lung Disease Unit at the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. And he's here to discuss his editorial, The Prognostic Value of the GAP Model in Chronic Interstitial Lung Disease, The Quest for a Staging System. Ethel, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Okay, well, let's, let's get going. Uh, Chris, tell us, tell us what your group accomplished and, and, and why. What made you go uh, explore this deeper? Sure. So um, before I, I describe the study, I'm just going to start by uh, acknowledging the co-authors and especially uh, a few people, Eric Fittinghoff, Brett Lay, and Al Collard, who, uh, who really did an incredible amount of work on the paper and, and the original paper as well that laid a lot of the groundwork for the, the current publication that we're going to discuss. Uh, so what we did um, is we originally derived and validated a mortality risk prediction tool for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this paper we published uh, in Annals of Internal Medicine in 2012. And that paper really just dealt with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which, uh, as people will know, is, is probably the most common uh, um, interstitial lung disease or fibrotic interstitial lung disease that we deal with in a, in a clinical setting. So this just applied to IPF, um, and what we did was derive this model, which we described as the GAP model, GAP model, for the components of gender, age, and physiology. And we derived this as a continuous score that could just be punched into a smartphone or a computer and an index that could easily uh, be calculated with reference to a short scoring algorithm and then a staging system. And the purpose of these was to predict mortality in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this model worked pretty well. It had a C index of 0 0.70, which is generally considered acceptable for model performance. It compares reasonably well to clinical prediction models that are used in common cardiovascular diseases. Uh, many of the things from the Framingham Heart Study have similar uh, performance. And then what we did in this study uh, that's um, being published in CHEST is we extended this GAP model to use in other fibrotic interstitial lung diseases. And specifically what we were interested in is studying connective tissue disease-associated interstitial lung disease, chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis, idiopathic nonspecific interstitial pneumonia, and then a group of unclassifiable interstitial lung disease that generally includes patients with those uh, earlier diagnoses who can't be confidently classified. Uh, so what we we recognize that these are, are fairly common fibrotic ILDs, and there's really little that's known about them. Uh, so we wanted to generate um, an easy way to approach prognostication in all of these uh, interstitial lung diseases. And what we found was that taking this original GAP model, we could apply the same uh, scoring system and same uh, index to this, this diverse population. And it, it worked very well in these other fibrotic ILDs despite being derived and validated in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, what we saw uh, was that uh, for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the mortality was worse, uh, as you would expect for any given score on our index, um, and it was also worse for unclassifiable ILD than it was for the other fibrotic ILD subtypes. So what we did in the end was we added another category to the GAP model to create the ILD GAP model uh, that accounts for this better survival in connective tissue disease, idiopathic NSIP, and chronic HP 
Um, and so what we do essentially is take points away for these diagnoses to come up with uh, a way of predicting mortality uh, across all fibrotic ILDs. Uh, overall, this model performed pretty well and actually performed better in many cases than it did in the original uh, IPF uh, derivation and validation cohorts uh, with a, a C index uh, that ranged from 0.7 to 0.8, which generally anything above 0.7 is considered acceptable uh, and anything above 0.8 is considered excellent in terms of prediction modeling. Uh, so overall, uh, we thought that this was a, a, a an easy um, way to to provide some prognostic uh, um, estimates of mortality across a, a wide variety of fibrotic ILD. That's fantastic. Um, and, 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 I, and as I always say, you know, for any of our listeners that have not obviously had the opportunity yet to to read the article, I, I strongly encourage them. It's it's uh, uh, a great discussion both on the disease state and also on your methodology on on how this was derived. Um, uh, and so um, I'll make that plug to go read it because trust me, it's a, it's a good read. Um, Ethel, what do you think? I mean, can you uh, comment a little bit about uh, from your perspective uh, on this on this work? Yes, yes, I thought it was fascinating work. And before I say any more, I too should acknowledge my co-author in the editorial. Katerina Antonio, who is one of the sharper thinkers in interstitial lung disease in Europe. So um, considering the implications, I think it's good to break it down into the immediate value of these data on a couple of levels, but also what this means in terms of future staging. And I think I should start with immediate implications because in clinical practice, very often we are working without a 100% diagnosis. Now, Chris and colleagues have described unclassifiable disease and made the point that more than 10% of patients with interstitial lung disease can't be confidently classified. But then there is a larger subgroup where you have a working diagnosis of one disease or another the confidence level is high enough that you are going to initiate therapy for that disease, but differential diagnoses remain realistic. And so to have an index which provides parallel distinctions across disease groups becomes very useful if you are operating clinically with a diagnostic confidence significantly below 100%. It means that you can apply these severity thresholds even if you are insecure to a small extent about the diagnosis. So that in itself, I think, is very useful for clinicians. You know, I wanted to echo what you just said because you're right. The, the very first question every one of our patients who comes into a clinical practice asks because they've already read at least something online is what's my prognosis, you know, and then, and then yes. tell me more about the disease, but the very yes. first question, right? And so you're, yes. that's an excellent point. Um, and to take that a bit further, what really stands out in the survival curves is the radical difference, the four categories used. Um, so the scales from memory, naught and one, two and three, four and five, or have I got one and two, three and a four? Four categories of scale and a big difference in outcomes between the most severe and the least severe and that echoing across the diseases. Um, I'll come back to that. 
when we talk about staging. Yes. But the other point I think it would be worth making is that we have difficulties in evaluating pathogenesis in our diseases um, because it is likely that pathogenetic pathways change as disease becomes more severe. So you would like a cross-interstitial lung disease to be able to make parallel distinctions based on severity thresholds with similar divergences in outcome so that you can study pathogenesis at different levels of disease severity and you would like to be able to identify pathogenetic pathways that are common to diseases. Um, and so it is very nice to have a prognostic index which gives you parallel distinction across diseases. We have good reason to suspect that pathogenetic pathways change as disease becomes more severe. So to give you an example of this, nonspecific interstitial pneumonia has a much better outcome than IPF, but once the gas transfer is much below 35%, the two diseases appear to have a similar poor outcome. But the difficulty we've had is that until now, trying to tease out severity distinctions has been too difficult, especially comparing diseases. And so trying to evaluate changes in pathogenesis as disease progresses has been in the too hard basket. And I see this tool as potentially allowing comparisons between diseases standardizing for disease severity in realistic subgroups. So I think it also has important implications in future pathogenetic studies. Chris, what do you think? Is that the direction your group is also going? Uh, I think that's a great, a great point. Um, I, we're not specifically studying that question, but I think that is something that is definitely an important area uh, for future study. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Well, and let's um, – sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to go on to the issue of staging. That was, but, the, that was the question I was about to ask. Perfect. <laughs> but, but, but actually, I think it would be only fair to allow Chris to comment on this first of all. Sure. Please. Um, please. So in talking about staging of, of IPF and other ILDs, I, I think um, – in the initial GAP study, uh, the one that was previously published, we did develop a staging system uh, and grouped patients into stage one, two, and three, uh, and, and tried to provide some recommendations on how the clinical and, and research implications should be approached in those different stages. We didn't provide stages per se in this paper. Uh, we did group point scores from our ILD GAP model uh, into zero to one points, two to three points, four to five points, six to eight points. Um, but we refrain from providing actual stages for a couple of reasons, which, which I'll get to. Uh, I think it's worth comparing uh, ILD to other common pulmonary diseases where we do have staging systems, because I think it, it highlights some of the, the limitations of staging in ILD and maybe some of the, the challenges that we have to overcome. So if you think about COPD, uh, obviously there's the, the gold grade uh, staging system. Uh, and COPD, I think, has a, a relatively homogeneous rate of progression, and it's fairly well represented by lung function. So it's fairly simple to just stage patients based on FEV1, as is done. Um, 
in contrast, asthma is a much more episodic disease, and we consider staging based on symptom control or lack of control. Uh, and then lung cancer is the other big big category, and, and that we consider the spread of disease, which has clear uh, and important treatment implications. I don't think ILD and IPF in general um, has the same kind of of qualities that would allow a, a very easy staging system to be developed. And uh, some of the, the limitations, I think, from ILD is that we can identify different stages, but we don't really know what to do with them yet. Uh, we can identify the different stages and assign prognosis up to uh, estimates to those different stages, but we don't really have any guidance on how to use those stages to compare different treatments or or, or guide treatment decisions. So it, it's difficult to know where staging is going to fit into IPF or ILD because I don't think we quite have have the, the clinical use of a staging system yet for some of these diseases. I would argue perhaps that we have the clinical need because most of our decisions are dichotomous. Um, do we introduce the therapy or do we continue to observe? Do we stay with the same treatment or do we increase the intensity of treatment? And I certainly agree with you that we may not have that repertoire yet in IPF, but there's every chance that we might well have it within the next year or two. And thinking more by analogy with oncology, where you are able to define very broad distinctions in outcome, a group A, group B approach, it's turned out historically to be hugely useful. And I think one can argue that in chronic ILD, our outcomes are somewhat alike those in oncology. So we have our most prevalent disease with an outcome of lung cancer. We have less prevalent diseases with outcomes of breast cancer or lymphoma. And in all those diseases, it has been hugely useful to subgroup patients into high and low-risk groups to make dichotomous decisions about interventions. So really arguing by analogy, one has confidence that if we had a robust way of doing this, we would sure make use of it. But right. the difficulty is that when you look at outcomes in the manuscript, and the, I think the figures and tables are really rather beautiful in making these points, and you look at survival in various individual diseases, you can see marvelous separations between the grades 0 and 1 and the grades 6 to 8, but you have these two intermediate groups in between that are really difficult to handle. You don't have them either as high or low risk. And I think if we were ready to find an accurate staging system, you would want a way to actually try to discriminate better in the middle groups between high and low risk. You would certainly accept the huge differences in outcome between the worst group and the best group. I mean, that sort of distinction in oncology has been hugely useful in staging. So the challenge is what extra information you might need in the intermediate groups, because you certainly need something extra so that individual patients within those groups, their risk can be nuanced an individual patient can be moved into the highest risk or the lowest risk group. 
And the challenge for accurate staging is how does one take these impressive prognostic distinctions in four groups and try to reach a somewhat less complicated model right. of high and low risk. Yeah. One of the, the points that you, you touch on there, Athel, is whether moving from one stage to another should be a, an indication for a change in treatment when, when and if we do have treatments available for this, for IPF and, and these other diseases. The other option is, is to look at um, more simple measures of physiologic progression uh, and using those to guide uh, treatment decisions, and um, that I think could run in parallel or it could be incorporated into a staging system, uh, but that's that's something that I think lots of groups, including both of us, have, have worked on similar things, looking at progression of, of fibrosis, uh, and maybe that's where where the treatment, treatment implications come in rather than in changing a stage, which is a, a relatively uh, large change to go from one stage to another, the way we, we set it up in the GAP uh, original paper anyway. One of the difficulties with changing the stage is something that's useful at a single point in time because it's coarse, because you can separate into large subgroups, is that in reality, to change stage, one patient might change very little if they're on the edge of a stage. So they might move to a more severe change with minor change. Another patient who is well away from the margin between stages may have lung function change which is larger but not change their stage and so i also think that the answer is to combine the course baseline stage with thresholds that predict mortality um, the sort of 10 percent fvc thresholds to refine prognostic evaluation so the best staging system might be a staging system which combines baseline information and short-term change using prognostically valuable serial thresholds. And then the other question is whether biomarker data might be integrated into such a model. Right. So in the patients with an intermediate outcome, uh, you would want to know whether biomarker data might place them either in the high-risk or the low-risk group. Uh, I suspect strongly that biomarker data won't stand alone. It will need to be refined, um, and there are examples of that in the literature. The Richards paper in IPF, where a number of biomarkers predicted outcome, but once severity was in the model, only one biomarker was retained, and so was severity. So one suspects strongly that a blend of biomarker and severity data may really inform staging in due course. Yeah, I so, think those are great points. Yeah. I wanted to ask the two of you as well, um, the, the dissemination of this model, that both the GAP model and now the ILD GAP model, are we seeing... With a prognostic perspective, are we seeing then changes in some of the uh, clinical intervention trials that are going on as you know, attempts to disease modify that you're using this kind of prognostic scoring to say, okay, we don't want patients that are too healthy or we don't want patients that are too sick. Uh, we want right in the sweet spot, if you will, from a per perspective of an intervention. 
The reason I'm slightly chuckling is that we run the risk of discussing mortality as the primary endpoint in treatment trials right. because these models inform survival. Right. And so if mortality was indeed a primary endpoint in treatment trials, one would use these models to enrich populations to select those patients who are likely to have uh, outcome signal for the worst to see if treatments made a difference. Our difficulty is that there is some disconnect between serial lung function change in a year and ultimate mortality, and currently primary endpoints in treatment trials are about serial lung function change, particularly the FVC. And that's a very difficult area. There's a, the publication by uh, Schmitz and colleagues in CHESS just a few months ago uh, looking at predictors of, of changing uh, FVC and the previous changes in FVC don't predict future changes in FVC. Yes. And, and that has, has bigger implications, I think, for the design of clinical trials that are based on FVC as a primary endpoint. Yes, I think that's right. It's telling us, I think, that we can't use previous disease behavior to select those patients who will who will give us outcome signal when whom it will be possible to see whether a treatment is um, more effective with lesser patient numbers. We're not equipped to do that in IPF, I think. I, I, I'm not sure that your data allowed this either. No, I don't think I don't think our data touches on that. Anecdotally, I, I do suspect that longitudinal changes in FVC predict future changes in FVC and the other fibrotic ILDs, but that's anecdotal, and I don't think that anybody has looked at that question yet. No, I'm, I'm wondering, have you um, considered, and I think I'll be able to predict the answer, but what about sarcoidosis in regards uh, to the ILD discussion? That's difficult. Sarcoid is... <laughs> that's what is I a, thought the answer would be. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very difficult disease to study because it is so heterogeneous. And Correct. At, at the same time, it, it's, it's also fairly common. So by, by absolute numbers, there are a lot of patients with sarcoid. Um, a lot of, most of them, the vast majority of them, though, don't progress to a fibrotic interstitial lung disease. Correct. So we didn't specifically include um, sarcoidosis in, in this model largely because we don't have the numbers, but also because it is such a heterogeneous disease. And in order to include it in, in this kind of a model uh, based on a retrospective database, it, it just would logistically be very challenging to go back and relook at every CT scan that's been done and determine whether they actually did have a fibrotic ILD or not. Uh, so it does complicate things. And, We've actually, it, as group, just published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine a 500-patient sarcoid cohort. Um, Simon Walsh is the principal author, David Hansel, the senior author of that study. And I think I must echo the difficulties. This is not a population of unselected sarcoid patients. You do not have sufficient mortality on average in sarcoidosis to construct a staging system across the whole disease, I think. Um, which is specifically pulmonary. Uh, but this cohort is problematic patients sent to a referral centre, which I suppose we can identify reasonably confidently in our day-to-day -day practice, but it's a selected cohort. Right. And you can indeed stage surprisingly accurately 
using a combination of CT and lung function. And in summary, what you are assessing is disease severity, both in the interstitium and as judged by pulmonary vessels on CT and the composite physiologic index, and you can separate quite strongly into group A and group B. But I, I don't think that the system you've used in the other diseases will translate well to sarcoidosis across the board. So I think you made a good decision not to include sarcoidosis. No, absolutely. I just I wanted to have that obviously as part of our discussion. And and Chris, also it, um, in the discussion part of your article, um, you you give the opinion of, of several reasons of why you thought the ILD gap was actually better at prediction in non-IPF. Um, I just wanted to know if you wanted to expand on that. Yeah. So the paper uh, does touch on a couple points. So specifically, what you're you're discussing uh, or what you're asking about here is. The ILD gap worked better in, in HP. I was the, the best performing subgroup. It worked better in HP than it did in IPF, despite us deriving it and validating it in IPF. And I think that really speaks to two things. One, that, that HP, uh, chronic hypersensitivity pneumonitis, has a relatively predictable disease progression. That isn't an absolute, but relative to IPF, it has a, a more predictable disease progression. It's not characterized as often by acute exacerbations. And like IPF, it doesn't have significant extrapulmonary manifestations. If you contrast that to IPF, IPF has a, a quite unpredictable uh, disease progression. It, it is characterized by exacerbations probably on the order of about 5% per year, and those are, are generally unpredictable and highly um, mortal events. Uh, so it's not that surprising that it works better in hypersensitivity pneumonitis than it did in IPF. In contrast, it, it didn't work as well in connective tissue disease-associated interstitial lung disease uh, comparable to IPF. So it, it worked acceptably well, but not, not as well as in some of the other subgroups. And I think that, again, speaks to the heterogeneity of connective tissue disease-related uh, interstitial lung disease, and the, the heterogeneous extrapulmonary disease, uh, as well as the, the highly potent or potentially highly potent and highly toxic treatment options that we use in the connective tissue diseases. Uh, that can influence mortality, both by reducing mortality or potentially even increasing mortality. Uh, so uh, again, I, I think that actually the, the low performance in connective tissue disease uh, associated ILD or the relatively low performance, I think, speaks to the heterogeneity of that disease as well. Do you also, um, we talked obviously already about whether, you know, ILD gap and, and gap in general for uh, in pharmaceutical-based interventions or clinical interventions. What, what about also using this as a, a part of a decision tree for earlier referrals towards uh, lung transplant evaluation versus, hey, we can do a little bit more watch and wait with this patient, um, enroll in a clinical study, et cetera, et cetera, because of our predicted model for your prognosis, you know, transplant evaluation might be a little premature here. Yeah, I think that has some relevance. Uh, it, it's tempting to use it that way, to use the gap and the ILD gap models that way. I think we do have to be cautious, though, that these uh, these models predict mortality, uh, but there is obviously some error in that, and I don't think we want to make that error when we're talking about life and death decisions like referral for transplant or listing for transplant. So I think we do have to be quite cautious about that, and I think that's an area of future study that we really need to, to determine how these should be incorporated into management decisions, and I'm not sure we're quite there yet. Okay. 
I, I think one could make one point about that, though. In the supplements of the manuscript, you have the outcomes for the four diseases in Figure 1. And I think the most severe grade in each disease um, does have the sort of outcome which signals that you should be worried about delaying transplant referral. That is less true in the CTD ILD, isn't it? where even in the more severe disease, the mortality is of the order of 20% in the longer term. But certainly for the others, if nothing else, being in the most severe category uh, should make you question whether you might be delaying referral. Now, there will be other markers and um, arterial gases and evidence of pulmonary hypertension, so this would not stand alone, but perhaps it's a useful hint that referral should be considered if somebody is in the most severe category. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't. I think referral probably should be con- considered in in all of those types of situations. But I would hesitate to to use just the gap uh, or ILD right. gap models to delay referral. Uh, I think that that decision has to be based on more than just the the number that's that's spit out by this type of uh, of model. That if the intermediate groups could be separated to high and low risk groups, uh, certainly staging at that level might well turn out to influence future policy on transplant referral. Yeah, I think that's that's where we need to study this. Terrific. Well, gentlemen, we've been talking for a while now, and I want to make sure that there's not an area that uh, we needed to cover that I have overlooked, or that there's something that uh, you know either both of you that have, have really wanted to state, and has just been waiting for the question that I never delivered. <laughs> so, is there any final thoughts or, or discussion points that we haven't touched on? Not from my point of view, although I'd like to reiterate again that. We do need staging in interstitial lung disease. We do need something analogous to what is used oncologically to define discrete high and low risk groups. And I do see this study as exciting because it indicates that at least future staging systems are realistic. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The the one extra thing that I would add is that a, a lot of this work is, is based on a, a fairly large um, cohort of patients from a, a very large academic center in the U.S. And I think we're we're at the point in ILD research where we're reaching the limit of what can be done with single center data. And so I think that in the future, one of the things that we need to do as a research community is start pooling our data uh, and, and biological samples across centers. And that's really, I think, what will help move the field forward in the future. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. This was uh, perfect, and uh, I can't thank you both enough for your time. I really appreciate it. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Terrific. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Terrific.